Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. So just uh, going through Instagram, I came across a fascinating um, sex therapist and psychologist and some very innovative ways that I guess she's, number one, trying to advertise herself and promote herself, but number two, provide information that was incredibly interesting and helpful uh, through TikTok and Instagram um, what do you call them, video uh, feeds. And uh, they're funny and they're engaging. And so I had to reach out to Dr. Kate Bastreria, who has joined us from Los Angeles. She's a, uh, a sex therapist and a registered psychologist. Um, Kate, welcome to our show. How are you? Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for having me on your show. I'm really excited to be here. How are you? Very well, thank you. So, you know, your resume is extremely impressive. How did you get into being a sex therapist and a psychologist? Tell me a little bit about your background, if you could. Yeah, of course. So I'm, I'm a licensed clinical and forensic psychologist, a certified sex therapist, and I've got a few other letters after my name that I won't bore you with right now. But I really got into this field because early in my work, I started um, working in prison systems with uh, violent sex, sex offenders and also with non-sexual violent offenders. And I was really struck by the complicated relationship that people had to sexuality, to emotional intimacy, relational fluency. And as I emerged out of the prison systems and started working more in private practice, I was um, continuously just amazed by the complexities of sexuality uh, that came into play in people's presenting problems. So I really decided to focus and specialize more in understanding that intersection of mental health relationships and sexuality. Um, what do you mean sort of the, how, it, how it complicates things? So explain that if you could. So we all have our own unique understanding of what sex is and who we are as sexual beings. And that's shaped by so many different dimensional and implicit conversations that are often happening in our lives, societally, messages from our family, messages from our cultural and religious um, you know, passing alongs, uh, peer groups, what we see in the media, everything influences our perception of sex and our relationship to it. And then in turn, how we view ourselves as lovable, worthy, and, um, you know, uh, permissible creatures on this planet, you know, permissible in terms of accessing pleasure and being able to advocate for our own needs. So it's, it's a pretty nuanced dialogue that's always happening. And very few people are, um, given the the tools, the permission, the context, and the vocabulary to really understand that, you know, so we kind of are just bumbling around in the dark, I find. So it ends up causing people a lot of problems um, in their relationships, 
in their ability to date in, in a way that is meaningful for them. Um, yeah. It seems <laughs> like a lot of your posts are about um, getting rid of the pressure of society's interpretations or, or definitions of a sex or sexuality. You know, you, 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 uh, you had a post about uh, ethical porn. You had a post about masturbation. You had a post mm -hmm. about, uh, I loved it. I can't remember exactly what you said, but you said if, uh, if a billionaire can use a vibrator, <laughs> no, if a billionaire can, what was that line? It was it, so I said, if a billionaire can buy a vibrator to get himself off into space, you can buy a vibrator to get yourself off in the bedroom. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great line. Thank um, you. I, I apologize for uh, for not remembering it as uh, perfectly <laughs> as you stated, but it was oh, it was wonderful. Okay. Um, why is it? Is it is it is it that uh, religion, society, parents um, have just given us a whole bunch of hangups? I mean, unintentionally, yes. I think that most parents are doing their best, and most of us uh, are are emerged into the cauldron of culture that we're born into. And we don't necessarily question how we've come to know certain truths. So we just assume that they're true. And what I've learned in doing all of this work with, with sexuality and mental health is that it, there are actually a lot of things that have been, uh, a lot of truths, and I'm putting that in quotes for people who can't see me, um, that, that really are constructed and they're rooted in tremendous bias, tremendous fear, and in really, really old patriarchal systems and oppressive systems that had, you know, uh, good intentions when they were organized, but have become just, you know, devolved, honestly, in their function in society. So now what we're left with is a lot of arbitrary shaming around sexuality and a lot of unconscious conversations about who has the right to be sexual and in what ways. So barring, um, you know, non-consensual interactions, a lot of the work that I'm trying to do and promote on social media is getting people to understand that sexuality is complex and our relationship to it is complex. But if we stop shaming ourselves and everyone around us, um, we might actually feel a lot more at ease and at peace with ourselves, with our relationships, with our sexuality, and collectively as a culture. We weaponize sex a lot. And, we weaponize and, sex? Oh, yeah. How do we weaponize sex? Well, we use sex as a way to communicate all kinds of unmet needs, unmet uh, relationship needs, unmet um, needs around power, control, uh, a sense of worthiness, and and to abate a sense of scarcity. You know, we really weaponize sex uh, to communicate all kinds of other um, human contexts. So when we take sex out of that holster, what we actually do is redefine our relationship to it, which right sizes it and allows us to do what it's supposed to do, right? Uh, procreation, pleasure, connection, fun, creativity, spontaneity. And we can actually give ourselves permission to get our needs met in other ways without making sex that weapon. Well, that, that was a great list. So most people think sex is about fun and procreation. You had a whole list. What was that list again? Oh, I don't know if I remember everything I said, but spontaneity, creativity, fun, adventure. It allows us to access different parts of our personality. You know, when we think about the role of fantasies, we get to play out different parts of ourselves that may not feel accessible in the real world. So, I mean, sex is, I think about sex uh, as play for adults in the same way we might think about a sandbox as play for kids. 
we get to be creative and we get to be messy and we get to, you know, color outside the lines a little bit and see what lands. And connection was one of the other ones that you mentioned, which is obviously critically important. Yes. We're chatting today with Dr. Kate Balisteria. Uh, Is that correct? Balistrary. Balistrary. I apologize. Mm -hmm. Who is a uh, licensed psychologist and uh, sex therapist. Uh, She's calling into us from uh, Los Angeles, I think, tonight. Um, What a pleasure to, uh, to chat with her. We're going to take a break for some messages and come back more in just a minute. Stay with us. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Welcome back to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga960. We're chatting tonight with Dr. Kate Ballesteri, who is a licensed uh, um, psychotherapist and a a sex therapist. Um, And she's, I think you got a... uh, uh, recognition as one of the top 20 psychologists um, uh, in, in the United States. Is that correct? Yes. That, wow. Thank you for, for mentioning that. I was so honored. Um, I think it was in Yahoo Finance uh, for 2021. I was noted as one of the top 20 psychologists to follow this year. And, uh, and congratulations on that. And Thank I've got to, I've got to say again, you know, your Instagram um, page is, uh, is fantastic. And uh, uh, you review a whole bunch of different uh, issues. Uh, and maybe we'll go through a lot of them, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the services and, uh, and things that uh, you talk about and, and, and some of the, the therapies and answers that you provide. And, and mm-hmm. you, do, you do individual therapy and couples therapy and teletherapy and sex therapy. Um, and in the sex therapy, you've got a whole section that I was interested on sex addiction. Mm-hmm. Tell me, what is sex addiction versus just high libido? Great question. Um, So first, I want to just say there's no diagnostic criteria um, right now in the United States manual, the DSM-5 for sex addiction. Internationally, there's recognition of a compulsive sexual behavior disorder. Um, So there's there's some controversy in the US about whether or not sex addiction exists. So I'm going to use the language compulsive sexual behavior to sort of step out of that debate. And it's helpful to think a little bit around um, the the idea of compulsivity when we're looking at the difference between somebody with a high libido, even somebody who identifies as being hypersexual doesn't struggle with compulsivity. So the difficulty to stop when they want to stop. And I think that's one of the hallmark features of what some people would call sex addiction, but really what we're thinking of as compulsive sexual behavior. I've tried to stop. This behavior is not um, healthy for me in my life because it's leaving negative consequences, whatever those may be in a person's life. And no matter how hard I try, I can't stop doing it. And that to me is indicative of a really um, big shift and a pivot from behavior being healthy, constructive, pro-social, pro-relational, and I don't mean necessarily pro-commitment, but, you know, mutual, um, and, and the person being in control of their relationship to sex versus their relationship to sex controlling them and spinning them out. And I think that's really a, a, a key indicator that there's a problem here. What's the difference between pro-connection um, and you said you didn't mean pro-commitment. What's the difference with that? 
you can have a really, um, you know, intimate connection with someone, even in a casual sex experience. And I think sometimes what gets lost is the opportunity to honor someone's humanity because we mistake the term connection for this long lasting commitment, maybe marriage and children and, you know, mortgage and all the things that come with that. Um, so what can happen is people de-emphasize connection and they start to have less humanized, less mutual sexual interactions when they're casual, saving these more um, intimate, emotionally connected moments for uh, a partner with whom they want to commit. Now, I'm not suggesting that every casual um, encounter needs to be ripe with connection, but they can exist and they're not exclusive. Fascinating. I read a book uh, called Erotic Capital that said that 10% mm -hmm. of the population had um, um, not hyper, but uh, but but extremely higher libido than mm -hmm. the balance of the population, uh, and almost described that that was you know a, a strength rather than necessarily a a, a problem that would uh, be described as sex addiction. Do you? I I'm so that? impressed. I'm so impressed that you've read that book. Most people don't even know it exists. It's it's an excellent book. That's great. Um, it, yes, that's that's really sort of the whole argument uh, for saying sex addiction isn't a thing. Um, but where where I come in on this, and other professionals might agree or disagree with me, what what really again is that fundamental difference between being a really healthy high libido and something that can be constructive in someone's life is the difference between I can say no when I want to. And I can't. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Right. When so it's the way that it was described you. once is that you almost get the withdrawal symptoms and shakes and things like that you would yeah. if you were an alcoholic without alcohol or a cigarette mm -hmm. smoker without cigarettes. Is that true? Well, people who are active in the sex addiction community would absolutely say that's true. And there are some studies that that suggest, yes, there are post-acute withdrawal symptoms, certainly changes in mood, um, a lot of irritability, a lot of frustration, um, sometimes changes in sleep and appetite and, uh, you know, just sort of the uh, nervous system arousal, right? A baseline level of arousal that exists in the body can be impacted when somebody is without their primary coping strategy, which is what for many people sex becomes when it becomes compulsive. Coping um, strategy for what? Dealing with just problems in life? Really managing and regulating their emotions, right? Which again, can be very healthy, when it stops being healthy is when somebody's not able to stop behavior that is causing damage in their lives. Hmm. Fascinating discussion. Um, how do you solve sex addiction? 
Well, usually it, it starts with um, each person defining for themselves what they would like their sexual um, behaviors to look like and which behaviors for them, according to their value system, uh, are no longer something they think are healthy for them. And creating some containment and support around those behaviors and helping to teach them how to implement other coping strategies so that they can have a really healthy, thriving relationship with sexuality again in a way that feels contained and allows them again to stay in that you know, governing position of their directing their sexual behavior as opposed to the sex is directing everything in their lives. They're directing their sexual behavior rather than the the sex directing them. Right. Really? Okay. That's interesting. Um, and, 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 and if it's not sex addiction, but it's just this high libido, is there a solution to that? This uh, book, um, Erotic Capital, suggests that there's this huge difference between men's appetite for sex and females' appetite for sex, and almost was suggesting that the only solution was decriminalizing prostitution. Well, I actually would be in favor of that tremendously um, because I think what we are seeing right now is that there are a lot of industries where people are using their bodies for hard labor and sex work is one of those industries, but it is criminalized because of the punitive relationship that we have with sexuality and all of the shame that we started this interview talking about, right? So here's an example of how um, everyone involved in sex work seems to be criminalized, but particularly women who are sex workers um, and non-binary folks are really uh, overly punitive, uh, treated in punitive ways and pejorative ways um, because of the stigma that's attached to sex for, for these groups of folks. So I would love to see it decriminalized and regulated so that people could engage in sex work safely from all angles. Um, to your original question, though, uh, in, in the book, Erotic Capital, where they're talking about a high libido, how do you fix it? My counter question would be, why would you need to fix it? I, I don't know that you need to, because there's no problem unless it's a problem in somebody's life. But if there is a, a, a dramatic difference between the libido of, of one partner and another partner, how does... There, there is actually more research to suggest that there are a lot of um, gender constructs that go into understanding the reasons why some of those differences, stereotyped differences in libido might be true. Um, things like domestic and emotional labor that women uh, tend to have uh, put in their laps more often than their male counterparts in straight relationships. And when we factor and, and take into consideration those kinds of variables, we actually see that uh, you know women do have a lot more arousal than they're given credit for and higher libidos. But we have to rebalance the way that we relate to each other. And when we do that, um, couples are a lot happier. You know, there's a really great book out there called uh, something to the effect of why women have better sex under socialism. And regardless <laughs> of your politics, I think it's important to think about just what it's saying when we create a more egalitarian construct, guess what? One person's libido is not dampened down by all of these other domestic, emotional and household tasks. And then we couple that with the idea that women are totally um, given these messages that their sex is only to be 
uh, enjoyed in service of procreation or with their partner, whereas men are socialized often to be more celebratory in their sexual arousal. And it's part of what, you know, uh, many men will, you know, be- hold on to is like a definition of their masculinity, right? The sexual virility. So we're socialized in these really different ways. But when we stop doing that, <laughs> we have a lot more room for um, libido equality. Libido equality. Fascinating. <laughs> uh, what are the other topics that you uh, spend uh, some time on both in your website as far as one of your therapies and then also in your Instagram is the issue of porn. And on your mm. uh, website, you talk a little bit about um, services that you provide for people that are addicted to porn, mm-hmm. but then you also have, and I was interested, um, references to, I guess, the good part of porn and you call it mm-hmm. ethical porn. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell me about porn, both the good and the bad, if you could. Absolutely. So, you know, 10 years ago, if we were having this conversation, um, I think uh, my perspective on this would be very different. So I'm introducing that to say that we have to take into consideration the context that we are raised in and the attitudes about pornography that we've been given to start. Um, So I offer that as a, as a, foundation here because porn, just like alcohol, just like truffle fries, you know, it's not the problem. It's our relationship to the medium that can be very healthy or destructive on individual levels, relational levels, and then certainly collective societal levels. So when it comes to porn addiction or compulsive porn use, all of the same criteria that I mentioned before would come into play here. Is someone trying to stop because it's having negative consequences in their life and they would like to change that, but they can't? That's when it maybe is time to look at, can I redefine my relationship to porn? But in terms of you know thinking ethically about porn, one of the things that's really important to consider is the overlapping um, industry of human trafficking that exists in the porn industry. And when we can stop to really kind of think about how to, you know, make sure that the erotic imagery and the erotic mediums that we're creating are done without the exploitation of others. This is where the idea of ethical porn comes into play. So how do you know that there's consent? You know, the producers of porn, how are they ensuring that? How are they talking about it? How are they keeping their actors safe um, medically, psychologically, um, socially? financially. Um, There are tremendous accounts of financial exploitation in the traditional porn industries. So the article that I wrote for your, uh, for Jimmy Jane, excuse me, um, about ethical porn was really a a call to action for people to be ethical consumers of their erotic imagery so that they can rest into it and enjoy it without fear that they are participating in human trafficking, for example, unknowingly, or, you know, the exploitation of others. I saw a, um, a, uh, Instagram video that you did on something called the Cartman drama triangle. Yes. And it was interesting. Mm. Tell me about the Cartman drama triangle. Um, cause lots of relationships have lots of drama. Well, exactly. That's Cartman's whole philosophy. So Cartman, K-A-R-P-M-A-N, drama triangle is something people can Google to get a better understanding of the model. But essentially, he talks about how power is weaponized in relationships and how when we 
don't feel comfortable asking for and receiving um, uh, the asking for our needs to be met directly and and having that you know happen right seeing the fruits of that labor we then develop in, uh, indirect ways of communicating and usually it's through the jockeying of power so there are three positions on the triangle that of the victim or martyr that of the perpetrator or offender and that of the rescuer or enabler and each of them assumes either a one down one up or two up position of power and all have these unconscious uh, psychological narratives that keep them safe in relationship, albeit in dysfunctional or unhealthy relationship patterns. But we've all been on the pattern, we've all been on the triangle at different stages in our lives. So once you do a little bit of research there, it's easier to get on what is called the um, the circle of restoration. So stepping the out circle of, of restoration, restoration, okay. Mm hmm. Yeah, where we take accountability for our actions, we step back into an egalitarian position where we're all, you know, equal and interdependent and we can be direct and negotiate to get our needs met appropriately. But the way that uh, I understood it is that you had sort of a, an inverted triangle and the victim mm -hmm. was at the bottom and uh, you had an enabler at one end and you had almost it sounded the way you described it like a narcissist uh, at, at another end. Um, well, Nar people with a, a narcissistic organization can jockey around that triangle like the best of them, just like all of us can. And most of us have uh, a default position, at least in certain contexts. Um, but definitely the perpetrator or offender role is somebody who is more overt in their power play. And they might engage in more deception. They might engage in more manipulation, sometimes physical intimidation or aggression. Um, they might act out in other ways. Whereas somebody who's in the victim role tends to lean more into learned helplessness and um, you know, disavowing or giving away their power. They get to stay safe by not having to be responsible for everything, but then they also get angry that they feel disempowered. Um, and the person who's in the uh, enabler role gets to feel safe by um, engendering a need, right? You won't leave me if you need me. So just follow me because I know what's good for you and I can take care of it is kind of the underlying dialogue. We're having a fascinating conversation tonight um, about, uh, I guess, sex uh, and uh, <laughs> sexual dysfunction, et cetera, with a, uh, a sex therapist and uh, psychologist, Dr. Kate Bal Balisteri. Nice work. Thank you. I apologize. Um, and, and am I right? You're calling us, calling into us from Los Angeles? That's right. I'm in Beverly Hills right now. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. And, and as I mentioned, uh, uh, defined uh, by Yahoo Finance or somebody as one of the top 20 uh, psychology, psych, uh, sex therapists and psychologists in the United States. Uh, and so congratulations on that. We're going to take a break for some messages and come back more with Dr. Kate in just a minute. Stay with us. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca. Welcome back to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. We're chatting tonight with Dr. Kate Balisteri, who is a uh, psychologist and a sex therapist uh, in Los Angeles. She's got offices in uh, I think Chicago and Dallas uh, as well. Um, and uh, she uh, has a very active Instagram account. Uh, she blogs. 
Uh, her website really is quite fascinating. Um, I presume you're on TikTok too, as I guess, because that's where you get these Instagram uh, reels from. Yes. Um, Dr. Kate, uh, you've got an interesting section in your in your website about uh, sexual dysfunction. And you say at Modern Intimacy, we're not huge fans of the word normal. Each mm -hmm. person has their own relationship with sexuality, sexual wants, needs, and limits. Instead, if you think you or your partner might be struggling with a sexual dysfunction, try asking yourself if what you're experience, experiencing is negatively impacting your relationship and intimacy with your partner. If the answer is yes, you might be dealing with a sexual dysfunction or desire disorder. A sexual dysfunction essentially means that there is some aspect of the sexual experience that is not happening in the way a person might want or believe it's possible for their body. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's a sexual dysfunction? It almost sounds like you don't think there is sexual dysfunctions unless it <laughs> messes up with somebody else. No. Yeah, I think that probably needs a little clarification on the website. Um, a sexual dysfunction is really when when somebody's um, body is not cooperating in the way that they would like for it to cooperate. So examples of that could look like uh, vaginismus or dyspareunia, which refer to pain during vaginal penetration. It could look like early ejaculation or erectile dysfunction or delayed ejaculation. Um, difficulties with orgasm. Um, so those are some of the, the diagnostic um, categories of sexual dysfunction. What's, what's, if I apologize for interrupting, what's delayed ejaculation? I've never heard of that. So delayed ejaculation occurs when somebody's um, orgasm is not happening, you know, within a time frame that they feel comfortable, uh, much in the sense that early ejaculation is the same. It's happening faster than they would like it to. Now, I think part of why the language about sexual dysfunction uh, on our website is the way it is. I thought that was stamina or something like that. No, not necessarily. No, I mean, it's... <sighs> For some people, it extends beyond a, a degree of stamina then feels okay for them, right? And, and no matter how, how diligent they are in trying with a partner, they're not able to get, to get their body to go there. And so it can cause a lot of frustration. So that's really a hallmark feature of sexual dysfunction is that it causes distress for a person. Okay. Um, but you know what, what we talk about on the website in terms of let's question if it's really a problem is really to honor that there's significant diversity about what our bodies can do and what is considered within normal limits from a biological perspective and a potential perspective. But a lot of people will compare what's going on in their body with um, you know, the perception of what they think should be happening based on things they've seen in porn or stories they've heard their friends tell. And they're judging their, them, themselves you know, with an apples and oranges um, measurement and not really honoring the diversity of bodies and, and uh, you know, um, times in our life when there might just be other things going on that get in the way of us being sexual in the way we might want. So people are different. Yes. Thank you. 
Um, you're a sex therapist and, and mm -hmm. on your, uh, I presume in your practice, but also on your Instagram, you've got uh, a bunch of, uh, or several sort of how-to uh, things. And so I wanted to walk through some of them if we could. Uh, one <laughs> of them is tantric sex. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about what tantric sex is, if you could. Yeah, yeah, of course. So tantric sex really is, um, it's rooted in uh, Buddhist and Hindu philosophy and is really about joining and being connective in a different way. And, and, you know, different practitioners might have a slightly different lens on this, but I really think about it from an embodied and a spiritual perspective. And when I say spiritual, I don't necessarily mean religious. I mean, kind of just, you know, a greater, greater experience than, than yourself here in the moment. Um, so it's about uh, either during solo sex or in partnered sex, really being connected and slowing down to the sensory experience and getting almost in a bit of a meditative state. So if you think about it, it's kind of where yoga meets sex. Where and yoga meets sex. <laughs> uh, less vigorous sometimes, and it's, it's really slow and um, can be incredibly erotic because of the intensity of focus to the sensory experience and that that rhythmic movement that can come with syncing up your breath and your body um, again either for yourself during solo sex or uh, with partners and it can the focus is not necessarily on orgasm or even on penetration but it's about creating arousal and uh, potential for, for pleasure through this you know deeper connected, spiritual and meditative trance state. So I still understand. What is it? it? It's just slowing things down? I mean, yeah, in simple terms, it's slowing things down and, and it's aligning rhythm, right? And being very embodied and aware of the senses um, and the entire sensory experience that's in your body and really creating an expansive space for your consciousness to be focused on that. Okay. What is sensate uh, focus? So sensate focus is a style of, um, it's a technique used in, in sex therapy often that helps couples to slow down and establish safe touch. Um, and what I mean by safe touch here is that it's often used for people who have struggled with a sexual dysfunction or have a history of sexual trauma. And it's, it's really useful in helping people stay safely embodied, um, which can be difficult if people are really anxious about their sexuality or their sexual um, functionality in the moment, or if they have a history of feeling unsafe in sexual situations or in their bodies. So sensate focus is about gradually increasing the kind of touch from non-sexual to sensual and then sensual to sexual in a very slow and sort of uh, methodical way so that people can build up a sense of um, interoceptive awareness. So awareness of the cues in their body that say this feels okay or this doesn't feel okay. Um, and then they can communicate that with a partner. You also have a, a section that I found interesting about masturbation with a partner. Mm -hmm. Is it normal? It can be. Yeah. I, I would say there's nothing morally wrong with it. Every couple gets to define the boundaries of their relationship in a way that works for them. So, you know, some couples love to 
masturbate simultaneously with each other. Some couples love it when their partner um, engages in solo sex separately, and then they talk about it, and it's part of their uh, their turn on plan together. Um, some couples celebrate each other doing it and really don't want to know about it, aren't super bothered by it. And for other couples, it might actually be um, something that feels uncomfortable for them because maybe there's been a betrayal or maybe it's getting in the way of intimacy uh, with the partners. So, I mean, every couple gets to define that for themselves. You've got a post that is kind of provocative and interesting called Power to the Pussy. What was that? <laughs> Well, that's probably my favorite t-shirt. It's it's a t-shirt that I got many years ago at this really interesting art show. But Power to the Pussy and, and I think the essence of this t-shirt and also the post is really a, a conversation starter for understanding the way in which women are often separated from their sexuality and shamed for it. Um, which creates a lot of frustration for people and um, I think one of the things that I mentioned in that post is that when we stop shaming women for being sexual, what ends up happening is there's not as much sexual scarcity available for people. So that means that they're, that we're less likely to engage in like cat and mouse games with each other around sexuality or gatekeeping strategies because women don't have to protect their identity you know, if they, if they are sexual, they can just be sexual and that could be okay. Whereas when we shame women for their sexuality, what we're actually saying is this very natural biological part of you is bad or wrong and you have to be ashamed of it. So it perpetuates this idea that women can't give sex away as if it's a commodity. This is another example of that weaponized sex, right? So it creates this, this exacerbation of uh, you know, men, if we're talking about straight relationships, feeling like they need to try to get sex, get laid. Um, and, and it leads to a lot of coercion, manipulation, and duplicitousness and fear around, you know, if I give this away, what's going to happen to me? So this post is really about, you know, giving permission to women to let sex be a part of who they are without apology and asking everybody else to do the same because it benefits everyone to empower women sexually. We talked about sex addiction. On your website, you've got something called love addiction mm -hmm. and love avoidance. Mm -hmm. Is there such a thing as love addiction? Well, again, I think it's kind of a colloquial term, but it really is, um, it's a concept that speaks to really exacerbated attachment wounds, um, both love addiction and love avoidance. So when we didn't get adequate caregiving in, in our earliest years on this earth, you know, really between zero and 18 months or zero to 36 months, depending on the model that you look at, we learn to be more anxious in relationship or more avoidant in order to try to stay safe. And what can happen when people's attachment needs are not sufficiently met is they can become more and more polarized in, you know, uh, needing it, seeking it, wanting it out, uh, wanting it and needing it to validate a sense of safety for them versus avoiding intimacy, avoiding connection, avoiding relationships because it feels overwhelming, engulfing, threatening. And I'm sure many of the listeners uh, today can relate to this. Those people tend to find each other, the more anxiously attached, the more avoidantly attached folks, because there's something that they see in each other that um, 
you know, feels interesting and different and also something that feels familiar usually with their earliest um, caregivers and their family. So it can be a really frustrating dynamic for folks to be stuck in, but we do a lot of really great work helping people heal those early relational wounds and traumas so that they can go forward and have thriving intimate lives with folks. Another term you have here is sexual anorexia. What Mm -hmm. the heck is that? (laughs) So sexual anorexia is a term that is born out of the sex addiction camp of clinicians. And it really refers to um, a high level of shame around sexuality and a lot of deprivation around sex, either for oneself or even sometimes, you know, if we think about externalized sexual anorexia, there's an expectation that others should deprive themselves too. Um, But really it speaks to an obsession with sex, but also a deprivation um, around it. So avoiding it at all costs, but thinking it's gross and wondering what would happen if you were sexual and, Um, It's sort of the other side of the coin with compulsive sexual behavior in that there's intense preoccupation, but with, you know, sex addiction, if you want to call it that, there's that compulsive behavior and almost indulgence on the other side of that is restrictive. Yeah. So when we think about disordered eating patterns, we sort of have a similar, you know, overindulgence versus restriction. And um, that is a helpful way to kind of think about the obsession is the same, but the behavior is maybe a little different. Fascinating. You talk about um, the pandemic dampening libido. Do you Mm -hmm. think it actually did? I do. Yeah, I think um, there were a lot of couples in the pandemic and a lot of single folks whose libidos went out the window. And I think that exists for a couple of reasons. Um, One, there were a lot of stressors. There still are a lot of stressors and a lot of unknowns with the pandemic. So people are feeling really taxed and sometimes it's hard to feel um, arousal when we don't know what's going on in the world. Um, Depending on where you live, there's been a lot of political unrest in the last year and change too. So there's just a lot that's going on in people's worlds that compete with, you know, this idea of being sexually uh, vitalized. But for other folks, that stress actually can feel more sexually vigorating, right? Everybody's a little different there. But the other variable for couples is like being in quarantine and being stuck together all the time and not having enough texture in your lives to go away and reunite and have something new to talk about. So work with a lot of couples who saw each other in the same sweatpants every day, (laughs) doing the same thing. And they got bored with it. Yeah, exactly. We need a little bit of air to create sexual vitality. On your website, you got a whole section dealing with trauma, mm-hmm. uh, the impact of trauma on the brain, uh, sexual, emotional, physical, financial, spiritual trauma, heal- healing from trauma holistically, um, narcissistic, toxic relationships, betrayal trauma. Sounds like a lot of problems. Well, there are a lot of people who get very wounded in relationships, right? Because of that, that weaponization that we talked about before, weaponization of sex, weaponization of power, weaponization of financial resources. You know, when we aren't able to communicate our needs directly, we end up hurting other people. And there are often um, a wake of wounds uh, that people are healing from uh, as they move forward in their lives. So 
you know, we try to work with people around whatever pain points they have and help them to move from a place of pain to a place of restable, uh, restabilization. And then from there to a position of thriving and really reaching your potential, whether it's in work or in relationships or, um, you know, otherwise. So. I know someone who was uh, raped uh, mm. that, that has stuck with them for a long period of time. How does one get over that? That's a great question. Um, I want to really be careful here not to suggest that it's a switch that gets flipped, right? I don't think we get over tra traumas uh, a lot of the time. We learn to heal in the sense that we learn how to assimilate the experience into our way of being in the world. And we learn to cope with the emotional distress and fears that can feel really big and difficult to moderate in the immediate after effects of trauma. So when we really get clear on how any particular trauma, um, especially sexual trauma, has impacted us across all the different domains of our lives, we can start to make more sense of it. And then we can start to step into a place of empowered choice making. And uh, that's where people really start to see change. But how do they do it? Do they sit down and get on a couch and talk to you about it? Or do they do <laughs> hypnosis? Or do they do psychedelics? Like what's the solution? Uh, you know what, there are lots of different ways to heal. And uh, I would be remiss to suggest that there's one appropriate way because everyone's needs are a little different. Everyone's impact is a little different. And what works for each person is a little different. So sometimes talk therapy is a strategy that takes person to a place of resolve. Sometimes they people benefit from more of a somatically oriented therapy or a body-based therapy to address some of the implicit dysregulation in the nervous system and the body as a result of trauma. Sometimes it's a combination of both, but I'm so glad you mentioned psychedelic treatment because those are actually taking off right now. And there's a lot of research to suggest that psilocybin guided treatment and um, MDMA guided treatments can show some very promising, oh, and ketamine treatments can show some very, very promising efficacy for PTSD, anxiety, depression. I mean, there are just really great studies going on right now that are hopeful. You also have a whole section on betrayal and uh, infidelity. Mm -hmm. How do you get over that? Well, I mean, very similarly, um, and whether somebody decides to stay in the relationship where there was a betrayal or not, really one of the tasks of recovering for them is going to be around setting different boundaries for themselves, learning how to listen to themselves and trust their intuition and, um, you know, advocate a little bit differently. And really it's about helping those folks step into a place of, um, feeling like they can be in their bodies, they can trust themselves and their partner again. And it's, it's sometimes a very difficult process, especially if they stay in the same relationship. Um, but with sexual infidelity, I want to highlight that a lot of the research indicates it has as significant an impact on someone as a sexual trauma would. So it's, it's a real deal, betrayal trauma, and um, you know, people can heal in, in lots of the same ways we just talked about. We're having a fascinating conversation tonight with Dr. Uh, Kate Balastralia? Balas Balasteria. Balastrary. Balastrary. I apologize. Mm, okay. a, uh, a clinical, uh, licensed clinical psychologist and a sex therapist. She's calling into us from Los Angeles. She also has offices where in Chicago and uh, Dallas. 
Chicago and Miami, Los Angeles, and we just opened up space, uh, virtual space in Colorado, and uh, soon we will be in New York. Fantastic. And, and, and how do you do this? Do you fly around to all these different places or you do it all virtually or you, you hire other people to uh, follow <laughs> your, uh, your lead? All of the above. So um, in the pandemic, we have given up our physical space. And once it's safe to be back in offices consistently, then we will open up physical locations again. But um, right now we're all virtual. And I do have really talented clinicians who are in the different locations and who are licensed in the different locations. Um, and then I myself, you know, I, I'm licensed in Florida, Illinois, soon New York, and then of course, California. So I do sometimes do some concierge work in different states, depending on where I'm going, but I live a bi-coastal life. So I go back and forth between California and Florida all the time. You've got tons of books behind you. You're obviously <laughs> extremely well-read. Give us a sense of uh, the education one needs to get to become a licensed clinical psychologist. Sure. So when someone wants to become a psychologist, it's usually um, a five-year program, four or five-year program for PsyD program. And uh, it can be longer if you take a, a traditional PhD route. Um, it really depends on whether someone wants more clinical focus or more research focus. Um, but the, you know, it's, it's rigorous in terms of curricula and there are different practicum that people uh, learn how to do diagnostic testing, they learn how to do therapy, and then they go on what's called a pre-doctoral internship. And that completes their education after which they may choose to do a postdoctoral fellowship where they continue to earn hours toward their licensure depending on which state they're in. And um, after that, you know, they're, they're free to sit for the licensing exam and uh, practice. <laughs> if people want to uh, access your services, either by uh, just following you on Instagram or checking out your website, where should they go? Oh, thanks for asking. My website's a great place to start. It's modernintimacy.com. And my Instagram and TikTok account is Dr. Kate Balistrieri. That's B-A-L-E-S-T-R-I-E-R-I. We're chatting tonight with Dr. Kate Ballesteria, a licensed psychologist and, uh, and sex therapist. We're gonna take a last break and come back with some concluding comments in just a minute. Stay with us. Okay. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Welcome back. We're having, I'm having a really interesting conversation, at least I am enjoying it, uh, with Dr. Kate Ballesteri, who is a licensed psychologist and a sex therapist uh, in Los Angeles, uh, Chicago, and Florida, uh, soon to open in New York. Um, and, you know, it's been a really frank and, and, and interesting conversation, Dr. Kate. So thank you so much for, uh, for being so open. And, uh, and, and it's been interesting. And I've learned a lot. Um, what's the future? do you think? What are you trying? What's the message that you're trying to provide to people? Uh, I saw a, a really fascinating post uh, again on your uh, Instagram account about a paradigm shift mm -hmm. that sex is not a performance or an indicator of worth. It is a solo or co-created experience of exploration and pleasure. Is that what you're trying to, is that a message that you're trying to get out? Yes, absolutely. Wholeheartedly. I would love for people to disentangle their relationship to sex from their identity. And, and I don't mean 
uh, sexual orientation and the identity that comes with that necessarily, but I mean, the quality of sex that I'm having, what does it say about me as a person? I think oftentimes we experience a lot of shame around whether we are having too much sex or not enough sex, um, shame about liking certain kinds of sex or not liking certain kinds of sex. And I think it would be um, a really lovely step forward into the future. And I know there are many sex therapists who feel the same way about this. If we could just continue to challenge shame and sex and really disentangle that, unless of course it's your kink, right? Then shame is great in, in terms of um, kink play. But otherwise, um, you know, making sure that there's really no shaming of your own sexual interests, desires, behaviors, um, or those of others, right? And whatever your choices can be, they don't have to dictate the lives of other people. I would say the one caveat I would offer there is that, of course, consent is assumed in this conversation. Right. Um, anything that's not consensual is, is not falling under this umbrella that I'm talking about here. Um, but when we're talking about fantasies, when we're talking about interests, when we're talking about consensual play, let's disentangle shame and really just get permission for people to have a relationship with sex that feels right for them and stay in our own lane and, and our own preferences around sexual behavior and stop you know, making it a condemnation of someone's personal worth or character if they have beliefs about sex that are different than yours. You've got uh, a lot of comments about misogyny. Mm -hmm. Tell me about, are, are you worried about this? Is it an issue? <laughs> it's a huge issue. <laughs> yeah, so misogyny is, um, it's a really dangerous uh, mindset and it's very prevalent and it's a, it's in a branch of sexism and uh, the oppression of women. So when we talk about misogyny, it really speaks to a hatred of women or a hatred of all things feminine. And it shows up in really insidious ways and slut shaming and sex blaming are, are a big part of that. So, you know, when we start to dismantle the double standards, why is it okay for men to be casually sexual, but women it's not okay. This is an example of misogynistic thinking that has embedded itself in the cultural framework and tapestry that we live in. So when we can start saying, well, why do I believe that? Why isn't it okay for women to be sexual? How did I come to believe that truth? Um, we can really start to examine, you know, all of these messages that of either internalized or externalized misogyny that exist and guide a lot of what we do in this world. Why does intimacy require courage? Well, because intimacy is really about being known and letting yourself be known. And with that comes risk, right? Risk of judgment, risk of rejection, risk of abandonment, risk of criticism. So it requires great strength and great courage to say, here's who I am. Dr. All of Kate, my spots and stripes. <laughs> Dr. Kate Belsteri, a clinical psychologist and sex therapist. Thank you so much for, for spending an hour with us tonight. We really appreciate it. You, I really enjoyed this talk. I appreciate it. Remind us again, the uh, Instagram account we can go to or the website. So my Instagram and TikTok are Dr. Kate Balistrieri, D-R-K-A-T-E-B-A-L-E-S-T-R-I-E-R-I. -E 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 and my website is modernintimacy.com. Well, that's our show for tonight. Uh, it was kind of a stimulating one, uh, at least an interesting one. I should uh, be careful with my choice of words. Uh, and uh, I'm on every Monday through Friday at six o'clock on 960 AM, or you can stream me online at www.saga960am.ca. All my podcasts and videocasts are available on briancrombie.com. 
the videos are on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram, and uh, LinkedIn, and uh, all my podcasts are available wherever you can get podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Audible, Speakeasy, etc. Thanks for joining me. Please join me again. Dr. Kate, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca.